1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Apple just hit a $3 trillion valuation. It brings in more money in a month than Netflix does all year. So why is it in the cutthroat television and movie business? Our media editor explains why it's a worthwhile side hustle for a hardware behemoth. And some diseases seem like relics of the past. Smallpox is gone and polio nearly so. But one old-timey disease is raging back to prominence, particularly in Britain, syphilis. Our correspondent says its resurgence is bad news, but for good reasons. But first, The world has already known several guises of Elizabeth Holmes. She was a precocious inventor when she founded Theranos at 19, a startup that promised an array of quick diagnostic tests on just a few drops of blood. Ten years later, the company was worth billions. As the sharply dressed, hard-charging, articulate founder, she was a media darling, setting an example in a male-dominated sector.
2: It's our actions that will determine this new stereotype around women being the best in science and technology and engineering. And it's that that our little girls will see when they start to think about who do they want to be when they grow up.
1: But the company's technology was more promised than substance, a lot more. As Theranos missed deadlines and faced breach of contract suits from the pharmacies it was working with, A truly sordid story emerged as Holmes had become a huckster figure who had wowed investors with technology that it increasingly seemed never really existed
0: we're back with it today exclusive
1: elizabeth holmes created a company to make blood tests more convenient and more affordable in the process she became a multi-billionaire but now there are new questions about the accuracy of those tests behind the scenes the company wasn't actually using its little gizmo called edison to analyze blood When Ms. Holmes invited Vice President Joe Biden to see the company, she built a fake lab for him to visit.
0: The way lab tests have been done have been extremely expensive. Uh, They've been inconvenient to literally get to get them done.
1: By 2018, the company had been dissolved. Ms. Holmes became a suspect as regulators alleged outright fraud. Last September, she became a defendant as her trial started. And yesterday, a convict. After seven days of jury deliberation, she was found guilty of four out of 11 charges of fraud, each carrying a maximum sentence of 20 years.
0: There were three parts to the verdict.
1: Tom Easton is our U.S. business editor.
0: The first part of the verdict was that she was found guilty of defrauding investors. The second part of the verdict was she was not found guilty of defrauding patients and doctors. And that was very important because had she been found guilty of defrauding patients and doctors, there would have been a moral quality to the deception that probably doesn't exist. And then there were three charges that they could not come to a decision on in the jury. There will be a mistrial declared for those three, and the government may contest those later on.
1: And we spoke just before the the trial kicked off. How did it go?
0: The trial began in September and lasted for almost four months. The prosecution, I think, called something like 30 witnesses. The defense only called three. Surprisingly, it called Elizabeth Holmes herself, which was quite dramatic. It went through painstaking detail on a lot of business and financial issues that are involved in the financing of companies. The key issue was not whether Elizabeth Holmes actually deceived people, but whether she knowingly deceived people. And therefore, the argument was always whether when olipithomes put forward issues concerning her company, concerning how profitable it could be or how successful its mechanism was for determining blood tests, whether she knew that she was exaggerating or actually making up out of whole cloth what her company could do in terms of money and in terms of science. And the jury concluded ultimately that at least in some cases, she actually lied. And you
1: mentioned that, that Ms. Holmes testified on her own behalf. What, what did she have to say?
0: I think when she took the to stand, her basic defense was she may have made errors. She may have said things she believed to be true. She may have said things that turned out to be wrong. She may have tried to enhance a presentation by putting together points that seemed like they were likely, but she never knowingly lied. And people may have inferred things from what was said. sent their way, or that other people sent about Theranos that she actually may have forwarded to them. But she herself never lied.
1: And that was her only line of defense? Other people might have misinterpreted what I had to say, but I I never intentionally lied.
0: There was a second line of defense, the so-called Thengali defense. And that defense was premised on the fact that her former lover and business partner, Ramesh Sunny Balwani, was actually sexually and emotionally abusive to her and controlled what she said and what she did. So even if she was acting fraudulently, it was not because she herself was acting that way. She did not have agency over her actions. It's because she was acting out his commands and it was his responsibility. He will be tried beginning next month. And it's very possible that he in turn will blame her for all the actions. So two separate trials, two partners, each blaming one another. Now, among the many interesting facts of this defense is that we really don't know what impact it had on the jury, at least yet. It's very possible it had no impact at all, that the jury looked at what Elizabeth Holmes did and made their decision on that and discounted whatever the role uh, Mr. Balwani may have played. But it certainly made for compelling courtroom testimony And it will certainly play a large role in the Hollywoodization of the Theranos case.
1: Well, that's about the investors who were clearly taken for a ride here. What impact do you think that'll have on the startup culture in in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, that, that fake it till you make it idea?
0: Well, you know, Theranos raises all sorts of questions about capitalism, about business, about idealism, about influence. You know, people really bought in to Elizabeth Holmes. She was a very, very compelling figure. She had a great way of dressing, and she captured fashion editors. She had an interesting way of speaking. She apparently intentionally lowered her voice. She had a famously unblinking stare. And the list of people who were Elizabeth Holmes fans was not inconsiderable. I mean, it included a number of former secretaries of state and secretary of defense who served on her board. And it included the then vice president of the United States, Joe Biden, who called the Theranos Lab the future of medicine and Elizabeth Holmes an inspiration. And, you know, one of the biggest lessons of Elizabeth Holmes's case is just how many suckers there are out there. And those suckers include some of the most prominent people in our society.
1: And as for Ms. Holmes herself, this is the last guys, the the end of the story. She goes from from convict, presumably, to, to inmate.
0: So the Elizabeth Holmes story is not going away soon. You know, Hulu put out promos in December of a miniseries starring Amanda Siegfried that they are putting out that's called The Dropout after Elizabeth Holmes's dropout in her freshman year at Stanford University to start Theranos. There's another production supposedly by Apple going on that stars Jennifer Lawrence, and I think that's just a fraction of them. There are numerous podcasts that are being done. There are probably other books. You know, Theranos was not that big a company. It raised less than a billion dollars. At its peak, it was valued in paper on $9 billion. That's a lot of money, but not really large by Silicon Valley standards and it never had any public investors you know so there were no mom and pops that lost money all the people who lost money and it were pretty sophisticated the largest claim there was for our moral case was in the patients who took the tests and maybe were harmed and yet somehow notwithstanding all those facts it, it just resonates in ways that very very few business and finance stories do and i think for a while they still will continue to do so
1: thanks very much for your time tom
0: yeah thank you so much
1: For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes.
0: Now to a major milestone, Apple becoming
3: the first publicly traded company in the world to hit a trillion dollars in net worth. ABC's chief business correspondent...
1: Apple was around for 42 years before it became the first private sector company to be worth a trillion dollars in 2018. A trillion, 12 zeros. The style gurus at The Economist had to rule on an abbreviation that there simply hadn't been need for. It took just two more years for Apple to be worth $2 trillion. And yesterday, briefly, it set a new record, $3 trillion. It's absolutely dominated the market for high-end hardware. It does more, of course, from news to music to, as of a couple of years ago, television. Not that too many people know about that. Every year, thousands of hours of high-quality content go unwatched, because good, hard-working people don't know how to find apple tv plus innocent people who may never know the pleasures of schmigadoon the comedian john stewart has a point here apple's tv plus isn't its most visible offering so why bother why take on the big names in such a crowded market
2: the streaming wars are getting more and more expensive if there's one company that has the money to ride out these wars it's apple which has an almost endless cash pile tom
1: wainwright is the economist's media
2: editor And so the question that keeps its rivals awake at night, really, is just how big in media does Apple actually want to be?
1: Well, to a degree, Apple is kind of already big in media, isn't it? At least in music.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's been doing that for a while. It was actually 21 years ago this week, in fact, that it launched iTunes. And of course, things then were a bit different with the iTunes music store when you paid to download and own um, individual tracks. And later they extended the same thing to movies. Things changed, though, after that. Instead of this download model, people switched to streaming, and Spotify and Netflix pioneered this, where you pay um, a set amount per month for a kind of all-you-can-eat model. And Apple sat that out originally, because Apple's big motive for getting into media originally was that it wanted to lock people into its devices. So you downloaded your music from the iTunes store, and once you'd done that, if you switched to a different store or switched to a different device, then you risked losing all your stuff. It was difficult to move it. But that's changed in the last few years. It's got into music through Apple Music um, about five or six years ago. That's now the second biggest streaming music service after Spotify. Uh, and more recently, a couple of years ago, it launched Apple TV+, which now is about the fourth biggest video streaming service in the world outside China.
1: But as Jon Stewart would joke, not a whole lot of people know about Apple TV+.
2: Yeah, it hasn't quite set the world on fire yet. I mean, it's doing all right. But It's not one of the services that really seems to get people excited. I mean, success-wise, you know, Ted Lasso has won some Emmy Awards. That's probably its biggest hit in the TV stakes.
3: I always figured that tea was just gonna taste like hot brown water. And you know what? I was right.
0: Yeah, it's horrible. No, thank you. Welcome to England.
2: And in terms of the number of subscribers, it's doing all right. But the trouble is, it, it gives away so many subscriptions that it's reckoned that probably more than half of the people who currently subscribe to Apple TV Plus actually aren't paying. And its key problem seems to be the lack of a back catalogue, because it's spending away commissioning new stuff. Um, Ted Lasso, The Morning Show, you know, it's it's had a... A few reasonably successful originals, but it doesn't have any kind of back catalog. And you compare that with some of its rivals, you know, um, Paramount Plus, part of Viacom, CBS, or Peacock, which comes from NBC Universal. And they don't have, you know, maybe such big original hits, but they've got these massive back catalogs, which go back literally decades from their parent companies. And it's that back catalog that keeps subscribers sticking around. And so Apple's finding that people sign up either through a free trial or because they want to see one of these originals, but they tend not to stick around for very long. And really in Silicon Valley, the question that many people ask is why is Apple in this business at all?
1: Well, presumably because it is a a sector that it too could eventually dominate
2: now if it has this big cash pile to work through. I guess so. But I mean, the price just isn't that big. You know, look at the entire global recorded music industry worth about $20 billion a year. I mean, Apple makes more money than that just selling iPads. A month of Apple revenues is substantially more than the, the whole global recorded music business's revenues. Apple makes in a month what Netflix makes in a year. And people just aren't sure really why Apple is bothering with this. Apple's enthusiasm for these industries seems to be a little bit half-hearted. I mean, it's got the money to spend really as much as it likes on content. But if you look at the TV side of things, last year it was reckoned that it probably spent somewhere between two and three billion on video content, which is obviously lots of money, but compare that with Netflix, which spent more like 14 or 15 billion, people think. It's not really giving it both barrels.
1: So what is the answer there? Why is Apple in it, as you say, kind of half-heartedly?
2: I think it's all about selling more phones, basically, at the end of the day. I mean, that's what Apple really does. I mean, look at its revenues. Last year, it made nearly $200 billion selling iPhones alone. And so if you think of what a studio costs to run, if Apple, using Apple TV+, Plus can persuade a handful of its iPhone subscribers to renew their iPhone subscriptions and, and get a, another iPhone next time it comes around to renewing their contract, then that pretty small investment in TV content or in music uh, is going to pay for itself. So there aren't many companies that can afford to think of a film studio as a, a kind of marketing exercise. But actually, when you're a company worth $3 trillion, you can.
1: So it's to your mind more about securing its dominance in, in smartphones than it is ultimately about dominating the, the media industry, or, or are there plans for that too?
2: No, I think that's right. I I don't think it particularly wants to dominate video or music. I I think it probably will gradually become a bigger player, partly because as the cost of acquiring all this content goes up, some of the smaller players are going to go out of business or or be acquired by others. So it's going to be a reasonably big name in these industries, I think. But I don't think it wants to kind of kill Netflix. I, I just don't think that's the end game here. I think it's trying to polish its brand a bit by associating itself with all these stars. It's trying to make the iPhone bundle, if you like, a a more attractive thing for people to renew. And I also think it doesn't really want to attract the attention of regulators. You know, the way to get really, really big in streaming would be to acquire a massive back catalogue. I mean, some people in the past have even wondered whether Apple could be in a position to buy Disney. But the FTC in America, the the antitrust regulators, are, are busy looking at Silicon Valley at the moment. And I think Apple probably feels like it has bigger fish to fry. I think attracting the attention of regulators just for buying a load of old TV episodes could be a strategic mistake. So I suspect it will be happy to remain a supporting actor rather than really trying to steal the spotlight.
1: Tom, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. It's the news that no one wants. There's no doubt in my mind now, John, that you have syphilis. And while John needed a few shots of penicillin to stave off the ulcers and the insanity, public health officials in Britain say this 1940s doctor's office scene is playing out today at a worrying rate.
3: There is a long and famous history of everyone blaming syphilis on everyone else.
1: Catherine Nixie is a Britain correspondent for The
3: Economist. So the English used to call syphilis the French disease. The French in their turn called it the Neapolitan disease. It didn't stop there. So the Russians had called it Polish. The Poles called it German. The Germans called it French. And the Danish called it Spanish. So people have always thought that syphilis is someone else's problem. But really, it isn't. And at the moment in the UK, that is particularly the case.
1: How so? What are we seeing with syphilis in Britain?
3: So syphilis feels like a really old-fashioned disease. You think of it as a Victorian thing, and it isn't. Rates of syphilis have been rising relentlessly for the past two decades in Britain. There was a recent paper in Nature Microbiology, the journal, and it said that over the past decade, rates have ridden by about 150% in high-income countries, and and it's even higher than that in Britain. So in, in 1999, there were 415 cases of syphilis reported at clinics in England and Wales, and then if you look 20 years later, in 2018, there were 7,541 in England alone.
1: So do we know why then syphilis ha- has these numbers that are growing quite big quite fast?
3: Nobody is quite sure why, but people have some suspicions. And what seems to have been the case is that, um, <laughs> in a weird way, it seems uh, likely that the reason it's going up is that is a really positive one. And it's that we've got really good at treating other sexually transmitted diseases.
1: How do you mean?
3: Well, we now have really good drugs to fight all kinds of sexually transmitted infections. I mean, Britain used to be a profoundly poxy place. So if you look back in the 18th and 19th century, exact stats are hard to come by. Doctors tended not to mention syphilis on the death certificate because it upset the customers who were the family of the deceased. But it seems that syphilis rates were very high. So estimated at about 8% among the upper classes, much lower among agricultural labourers. And some very famous people had syphilis. It was untreatable and it afflicted everyone. One of the most famous sufferers of syphilis was Lord Elgin. So he's famous today for having to face the Parthenon by taking away its marbles. But in his own time, he was much more famous because syphilis, or the pox, as Byron called it, seemed to have taken away his nose. So he had this famously craggy profile where his nose had been eaten away by disease. But then effective 20th century treatments, particularly penicillin, caused syphilis rates to absolutely collapse And then what happened next was that HIV arrived in the 1980s and that also caused a collapse in syphilis as people avoided all sexual risk of any kind. And so when I spoke to some researchers from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine who research this, they say that what's changed now is that we've got really good drugs for HIV and this seems to have led to a fall in fear and rises in risky sexual behaviour once again and particularly in sex without condoms.
1: So essentially getting really good at dealing with HIV has made people risky
3: again. Yes, exactly. And so syphilis is going up again, and particularly it was going up among men who have sex with men. But there's other things. So there have been drastic cuts to sexual health services in this country, about 10% in the past five years. And that means that people have less options to deal with STIs when they get them and they're less able to get them treated. But then, you know, there's still the big problem of denial. Syphilis, even now it's not the French disease, is still seen as something that affects other people. And if we want to keep cases low, that's going to have to change.
1: Catherine, thanks very much for your time.
3: Thank you for having me.